Well, good morning, church. Jesus Christ is our living hope. Amen? Amen. That's what brings us together. That's what is behind and through everything we're reading through Scripture. That is true for this morning as well. There was, um, sure you're familiar with the saying, whenever we point a finger at someone else, there are three fingers pointing back at us, right? Well, there was this man who wrote into a columnist in the paper, and he had this to say. He said, driving to the office this morning in the other lane on the highway, I noticed this crazy woman driving 65 miles per hour with her face up next to her rear view mirror, putting on eyeliner. (laughs) I looked away, and the next thing you know, She was halfway in my lane, still putting on her makeup. Can you believe it? He goes on, he says, well, as a man, I don't scare easily. But she scared me so much, I dropped my electric shaver, which knocked the donut out of my other hand. And all the confusion of trying to straighten out the car using my knees against the steering wheel. It knocked my cell phone away from my ear, which fell into the coffee between my legs, ruined the phone, soaked my pants, and disconnected an important call. All because of that reckless woman driver. (laughs) Now, have you noticed this about human nature? When admitting something bad about oneself, the capacity to focus blame on others is infinite. Isn't it amazing how we're able to pick apart precisely what is wrong with someone else and what, is it that, what they need to kind of shape up, yet we excuse our own wrongdoing? It's been said when it comes to others' faults, we have 20-20 vision, and yet we're blind to our own faults. Well, this moral gymnastics is referred to by psychologists as projection. Thomas Hobbes, a 17th century philosopher, said of these people who do this, that they are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other people. We quite conveniently retain our own sins and self-respect while condemning others. I'm okay, you're not okay. I'm okay, you're not okay. Well, as we come to this passage this morning in in the book of Romans, that's the scenario we encounter. And if you're not there, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, it is a word to good people. Now, I thought I was going to get down to verse 16, but I only made it to verse 11, We'll pick up 16 with what we're going to look at next week. But Paul comes through the back door here to make his points. And he sets things up uh, in a courtroom. And to the people Paul's writing to, they would understand this courtroom uh, terminology. Well, in this courtroom that, that Paul sets up here, God presides over it as the judge. The defendant is the moralist, the good person. And so Paul calls to the stand, the one who says, I'm okay, you're not okay. All right, three headings this morning. The first heading is hypocrisy of the double standard. 
hypocrisy of the double standard. Now, last week from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, we answered a critical question. The question is, was, why do we need the gospel? Why do we need the gospel? And Romans 1, 18 through 32 kind of laid that out pretty clearly, why we are in need of the gospel. And, you had to, and as we come to chapter 2 now, in verse 1, you need to remember that in the original scriptures, there are no chapter breaks. And that's, that's for our benefits. Chapters and verses and breaks. That's for our benefit. But it's not in the original scriptures. And so this letter we have written down for us uh, in our Bibles from God himself would have been read to the church in Rome that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Now I want you to get the full effect of this morning as they would read the letter out loud and the people like you would be sitting there or standing there listening to God's word being read. Now imagine also, imagine also that in this room are the good moralists. Some self-righteous folks listening to this letter being read. Now, he's, re- he's reading chapter 1, the section we looked at last week, and that's where I'm going to pick it up a little bit. And the one reading, right off, he mentions the wrath of God, which is being revealed against all those who suppress the truth, since what be, may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Well, How? Well, as we saw last week, uh, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. And so the, the reader's reading this, everyone's listening, and then he says, being understood from what has been made known, so that men are without excuse. And some in the group listening to this letter read might have voiced their agreement with amen and amen. The one reading continues. He says, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And those good people shake their heads in disgust and they say, yes, they have. The one reading this letter continues to speak of how how God then gave them over to what they wanted and and the idolatry in their hearts led to all kinds of perversions and lusts and and that they'd become filled with, with every kind of evil and wickedness and greed and depravity. You might hear some in the congregation go, yes, yes, that is what is wrong with the world today. The reader continues. Get to the final verse there in our Bibles in Romans 1, 32. It's although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only practice, continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. And then the do-gooders nod and they go, yes, go get them, God. Then he says, chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, <laughs> have no excuse You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And they're all going to say, what? What did you just do? You turn this from they to you. Everyone's getting a little uh, squirming. Because all are guilty before God. That means even the ones who consider themselves good people. And that's the group he's addressing here. Moralists. The ones who say, I'm okay. Because I'm a good person. You therefore have no excuse. 
he says. He lumps this group in with those who spoke of, he spoke of earlier who suppressed the truth and said they are without excuse. Same language. End of verse 20 of chapter 1. He says the same thing here. You moralists, you good people, you are without excuse. There it is again. Verse 1 again, follow along you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now the word judge there is used three times in this one verse. Now, quickly, as soon as you see that, you kind of go, okay, does that mean there's never a place uh, to make a judgment on a situation? Are we to never lovingly confront someone on their wrongdoing? Is, is that what it's getting at? Well, do you know the world's most popular verse? I mean, in my opinion, I think it's the world's most popular verse. It's the one verse that everyone seems to know. Whether you go to church or you don't go to church, everyone seems to know the verse. It's when Jesus said in Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. People know that verse. And people like to use it whenever they can, especially when they're being called out for something. It's the go-to verse to escape any kind of moral accountability. It's a verse people like. And so you go up to somebody and say, you know, I haven't seen you in church for a long time. Do not judge. You know, brother, your, your language is very offensive. Do not judge. You know, your, your drinking is out of control. Your time away from family is detrimental. Your neglect of your health is not good. Do not judge. So you can see why it's a popular verse. It's popular for all the wrong reasons. It's a misapplication of this verse to suggest that no one can ever call you out on anything. That's not what it's saying. And I don't have time to spend on what it's not saying, but I do want us to see here what the issue Jesus was addressing in Matthew 7, and the whole plank and speck deal that he talks about, and with the issue what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2 is that they have one standard for themselves and they have another standard for others. So the real problem with this kind of judging that they're speaking of is their self-righteousness. And we like to uh, accuse others yet excuse it in ourselves. We do it all the time. I don't gossip. I just share prayer concerns. Yeah, that struck a nerve. I'm not critical. I'm discerning. I'm not negative. I'm just realistic. I'm not unreliable. I'm just kind of flexible. Paul is calling them out. He calls out us out on our hypocrisy. And the point Paul is making here is that to justify our own sins... Call it whatever we kind of want to to justify it. Yet judge others for their sins is hypocrisy in its highest form. We see the same thought. Verse 3. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer of no. God's judgment is inescapable. And so the point, Paul, here makes about this group is that they set themselves up as judges. Are you doing that? And yet they're doing the same things. Now, it may not be 
that the self-righteous moralist was literally doing the exact same things he's condemning others for practicing. But if he stopped long enough to put a mirror up to his own heart, he'd see that he is as guilty as well. So the sins might be different, but the guilt is the same. Do you really want to set yourself up as judges? Do you have one standard for yourself and another one for other people? You see, our judgments are inconsistent, they're biased, and they're, and they're, and they're subjective. Yeah, we do it all the time. I remember the story of Jimmy. He was showing a picture of his kindergarten class to his grandmother. And he began describing some of his classmates. And he said, oh, this is Billy over here in that picture. I mean, he, Billy, he hits everybody. And this is Susie over here, and she never listens to the teacher. And this is Tommy. This is a picture of Tommy right here. Oh, he's got all kinds of problems. And this kid over here, yeah, he can get all, nothing but trouble. And he goes, every single kid there, he has something to say bad about him. And then he pointed to his own picture. He said, this is me. I'm just sitting here minding my own business. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. Oh, how we can clearly see the faults of others and think, oh, no, 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 I'm not, no, I'm not doing that. Well, ask the hard question, is there any self-righteousness in you? Let's not play the role of prosecutor. Instead, let's cross-examine ourselves. That's what he's getting at. It's all the hypocrisy of the double standard. All right, one of the second heading this morning is honest evaluation based on objective truth. I want to talk about that a little bit. Honest evaluation based on objective truth. Chapter 2, verse 2. It says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. You see, the integrity of God's judgment is contrasted with our inconsistent, biased, subjective judgment. Judgment of God is according to objective truth. It is his standard that matters. God is the only one who can judge rightly. Because he's the only one who can see in our hearts. And know all the information. We operate on limited information. And the problem with self-righteousness, this is the danger of it, is self-deception. We see ourselves as okay. But by the way, others, boy, they need a lot of work. And don't we just get all worked up over the sins of others, yet somehow minimize and justify our own wrongdoing. There was a dad who was complaining about the amount of time that his family was spending watching television. And he sat the family down and he went on this rant about the dangers of too much TV intake. He spoke of the time that was wasted sitting in front of the TV, and he, and he went on and on about the need to, to make better use of our time, and on and on he went, and no one dared to speak. He then ended his long lecture that, uh, uh, of what, with what was going to be done about it. And so in firmness in his voice, he says, something radical needs to be done, family. And so as soon as the NFL playoffs are over, I'm going to unplug the television. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, a little close. I'm going to throw my TV out then. There's nothing good, but keep my football. But how obvious, right, is the inconsistency 
of our judgments. That's the point. It isn't I'm okay, you're not okay, neither is it we're all okay. According to God's standard, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. So let's be less concerned about who's right, who's wrong, or who's more right and more wrong, and instead be concerned about the judgment that really matters, God's judgment. And his will be an honest evaluation. The beauty of the gospel is that God is so rich in kindness and so patient that he gives all people time to see their need for his grace. Look with me at verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Now, another place in Scripture, we see that uh, it's godly sorrow that leads a person to repentance. But so doesn't God's kindness. Well, how do we see God's kindness when it comes to what's wrong with humanity? He is patient. Better word there is he is long-suffering. God has the capacity for storing up anger before responding. And God's delay in judging sin is to provide an opportunity for the person to repent. He gives people time and opportunity to repent. And we should look at the others the same way. I mean, we may want God to come down and and pounce on them for what they have done. And it kind of causes me to ask this question and to wonder. Do we hate people's badness more than loving God's kindness? Do we hate people's badness more than loving God's kindness? Remember Jonah? That was his problem, wasn't it? Go read Jonah again. He's he's all hot and bothered. Because if God gives these people time to repent, then they may actually repent. And we can't have that, can we? And he is all bent out of shape. Are we like that, though? I mean, we secretly... We secretly want God's hammer of judgment to come down on people. Rather than they be given time to see their error of their ways and and come to the Lord. I mean, we wouldn't say it that way. Certainly not out loud. But God extending grace, God extending mercy to others, rather than give them what we think they deserve. Let's be honest. It bugs us sometimes. It bugs us sometimes. Right? Justice for them. Where's, where's the police officer when you need him? Stop him. He's flying. Justice. Grace for me, though. Justice. Do we hate people's badness more than loving God's kindness? Because you see, delay doesn't mean he's indifferent towards sin and he doesn't notice it. We need to chalk that up to the kindness of God. And the self-righteous who think they're okay... And maybe proof of that is they they don't appear. It doesn't appear that God's judging their sin. Be careful of your deductions. We can be fooled into thinking that just because we're so-called getting away with it, that all is okay with God. The word to the self-righteous is, from verse 4, is don't presume on God's kindness. Don't take it for granted. When we don't feel the weight of God's judgment on a particular sin in our life, and we feel we're kind of getting away with it, that is meant to lead us toward repentance rather than continuing in the sin. It's an opportunity for us to repent. But listen, that time will run out. There's a day 
When we all stand before the judgment of God that is based on truth. And it will be an honest evaluation. And when our actions and our, and our inner thoughts and our motives and our pretenses that have fooled others are held up to God's reality, his truth, and we stand guilty before him. I mean, what if, what if we really aren't the standard? What if you, you really aren't the reference point? I mean, consider a vertical reference point. Consider that God is the standard. He's the judge. He's the one to whom we'll give account. And we can see God as a reference point. It changes everything. Hebrews 4.13, you can jot it down. I believe it's going to be on the screen. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So when we acknowledge that we stand guilty before God, are we then ready to receive his provision? And that's my third heading this morning. Humbly or humble acknowledgement of the need for grace. That's what's needed for all of us in this room. A humble acknowledgement of the need for grace. Jerry Bridges put it this way. He said, you are never so bad that you are beyond grace's reach. And you're never so good that you're beyond grace's need. And have you noticed the hardest people to convince that they need Jesus are those who see themselves as okay. To think we're okay and that we don't need the gospel actually puts us in a worse place than those who are aware of their sin. I mean, there are some strong words here from Paul in verse 5. He says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. There will be a day when all the talk and all the pretenses will have to face the music. God will look at their walk and not just their talk, and it will reveal the heart condition. It's then that God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now, verse 6 there at first pass, it's rather perplexing. And verse 7 just kind of adds to the confusion, but let me read it anyway. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. I mean, it seems to be saying that those who do good get to heaven, and those who do not do good don't get to heaven at first pass. Now, when we eventually turn the corner in Romans, and believe me, we will get there. From all, we will turn the corner at some point in Romans, from all the bad news to the good news. It will be then clear that no person should be already, that no person is justified before God by what they do. It's by grace we're saved, not by works. And so we can't be saying that our standing with God's based on our works. What then is he saying? Well, I'm not going to get into all the options out there. You can kind of explore this yourselves. Do that to your homework. You can, you can look into it. I think it's saying this. I think it's saying this. That this is a hypothetical scenario. That if, they, if that good person, that moralist, the one who thinks he's okay, wants to be, put his good works up against the holiness of God, and he can pass the test, then God who is righteous will reward him accordingly. If he's lived a, a perfect life, then God will reward him. Is there such a person? I mean, do you really want to try to get into heaven on your own good works? I mean, do you really want to say to God, 
Look what I have done. Now give me what I deserve. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, in an interview with New York Times many years ago now, he addressed um, all that he had done for the city. His, his, his work with gun control and, and smoking cessation programs and uh, obesity curbing programs and on and on he went and on all the different things he did for the city. He then said this at the end of his interview. He said, I'm telling you, if there's a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Wow. I mean, how sad is that? And yet, how many people might not say it that way, but they're banking on their own good works. How many others really feel and live with that same belief? I mean, is your plan, is your plan as you stand before Jesus on that day to list your good works and hopes that they outweigh your bad deeds? Is that your plan? I, I, I call you, rethink your plan. We can't pay what we owe. Reminded of the story of, of, of Tom Allen, he tells of the time he took his two daughters, Abby and Flannery, out to get something fun to drink at a coffee stand. Abby got apple juice, Flannery got a mango surprise. Despite, he says, my insistence that I would pay, my daughters had brought the contents of their piggy banks, a combined total of about 80 cents. And as we're walking up to the counter, one of my daughters said, I want to pay for mine. I assured her, no, daddy's going to get it. Nonetheless, she insisted, no, 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 I'm paying for mine. Well, as the clerk rang it up, he said that would be $2.06. She put her cents change on the counter, and, and the clerk said, I'm sorry, that's not enough. He then says, I felt a little tug at my sweater for my other daughter, and I looked down and she said, I think I'd like to use your money, Daddy. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that changed. Are you trying to pay your own way? Is your thought, I'm okay, others are not okay? I mean, I treat people the way I want to be treated. I'm not sleeping around. I'm not doing drugs. I don't cheat on my taxes most of the time. I buy cookies from the Girl Scouts every single year. I uh, throw some change in Salvation Army's big red kettle each Christmas. I mean, all things considered, I'm a good person. Religious arrogance is not the way of God. It's not the way to escape God's judgment. Even religious people will be judged. God's not looking for more religious people. He's looking for more faithful people. He's not, he's not looking for more rule followers. He's looking for Jesus followers. And if you're here this morning, you're trusting in anything other than Christ alone for your eternal sa safety, you're the one Paul's writing to. The gospel changes everything. We can't pay any of it. Jesus paid it all. Jesus stood in for you, for me, for us to take God's judgment on sin. And to the one who can face their self-righteousness and allow the gospel to shine its light on your heart, you will see how much you need God's grace. Will you humbly acknowledge your need for grace? You're never so good that you're beyond his grace. 
Because religiosity won't help you when it comes to standing before the impartial, holy, righteous God. Paul later on will say, all have sinned. The one who figures I'm okay by his own standards will soon discover that before God, he feels short, falls short of God's standards. And we'll see in a couple of weeks, there's no one righteous, not even one. So there's nothing about any of us that would persuade God to make an exception. That's why he seems to summarize this section by saying, verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. We all stand guilty before God. Then you say, okay, you're an exception. You're not. God does not show favoritism. Now listen, church. Neither should we. Live in the reality that we all, everyone in this room, are in constant need of his grace. That's the gospel. And it changes everything. It changes how we view ourselves, and it changes how we view others. There's no place for self-righteousness in the Christian community. Not if we understand the gospel. Because we know we are what we are because of the grace of God. Again, is there any self-righteousness in you? Do you tend to look down on others? Do you see yourself as better than most people? I'm okay, you're not. Have you been lately maybe hypercritical of other people? Are you holding a standard over others that you wouldn't want held over you? And what might be causing you, thinking of Jesus' analogy of the, of the, of the plank and, and, and the speck in Matthew 7, what might be causing you blurred vision of your own stuff that God wants you to work on because you're too busy telling what everybody else is doing wrong and you got that down pretty well? Is there a plank in your own eye? Is there something there that needs to be removed? A 67-year-old woman, a true story, I checked it out. A 67-year-old woman scheduled for routine cataract surgery thought it was just dry eye and old age causing her discomfort. But the real cause of her discomfort was, was much more concerning. 27 contact lenses were stuck in the woman's right eye in a blue mass. Now, I wear contacts. I can't imagine 27 of them being in there. Rupal Majeria, specialist trainee in ophthalmology, said the woman had poorer vision in that eye. Okay, imagine that. I mean, it's no wonder. But it wasn't until the anesthesiologist at the hospital started to number eye for surgery, he found the first cluster of contacts, 17 of them. Majoria said he put a speculum, uh, a speculum into the eye to hold the eye open as he put the anesthetic in, and he noticed a blue mass under the top eyelid. Eventually, he found 10 more lenses, a total of 27 lenses. We're all shocked, Majoria said. We've never come across this. A representative from the American Academy of Ophthalmology said he's seen patients have one lens stuck, but never 27. This is one for the record books, as far as I could tell, he said. Well, apparently, the woman had been wearing monthly disposable contact lenses for 35 years, but it's unclear how long they've been gathering in her one eye. 
Sometimes, she said, when she would try to remove a contact from, the lot, from her eye, she couldn't find it. So she just assumed she dropped it somewhere. So she just, just put another one in. Sure. I wonder, how in the world did she not notice? But how is it that we don't notice our continual practice of judging others? It's amazing that we can be so self-righteous in how we judge others that we don't even notice our poor vision. We get so comfortable with our critical spirit. We're unaware that we have this mass lodged in our eyes, impairing what we see. What self-righteousness needs to be removed that's affecting your vision of others and seeing what needs to be addressed in your own life? You're not seeing it. Come back to the gospel. It isn't your own righteousness and goodness that earns favor with God. It's the provision of Jesus' righteousness. It's the only way in, folks. Lay down your pride of self-righteousness. And let's live humbly before God. Understanding the grace we need every day and extending that grace to others. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. Help us to continue to just kind of work it over in our minds as you want us to do. Personalize it. Be real easy to hear something like this and say, oh, I know who needs to hear this. And that you shine the mirror up to our own heart and say, no, 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 pastor, you need to hear this. So God, just work in us. Show us what it is that we need to literally see out of this and apply it to our lives for your glory and and all your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.